0: Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost Series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Today, we're very happy to be joined by uh, Pereric Melander, uh, catchment scientist at uh, Chagas Johnson Castle. Perig, you're an almost naturalized Irishman at this stage, uh, hailing from Sweden.
1: That's correct. I've been here for 12 years now.
0: Okay, so you're, you're around, the catchments program is 12 years old at this stage, uh, so you're around right from the beginning of that program.
1: Yes, yeah, I came over here to work with, with the catchments program.
0: Okay, and your talk today is, is on findings from 11 years of high temporal uh, resolution monitoring in the agricultural catchments program.
1: So in, in this presentation, I'm going to give an overview of, of the agricultural catchments program and some general findings and aims for the future. So the agricultural catchment program have been monitoring water quality in, in the river outlets of six catchments every 10 minutes uh, for 11 years. So there's no way that I can sum up these 11 years now uh, of, of, of this uh, big program in 25 minutes and and do justice to the program. But I will give an overview of of my conceptual understanding that's been built up over the years, uh, together with the team. So the drivers behind the programs are, of course, agriculture, environment, and policy. And as an EU member state, we are under the Nitrates Directive required to assess uh, the National Action Program. And we have here in Ireland the Good Agricultural Practice, which has been in legislation since 2006, and this includes baseline nutrient mitigation measures. And that's where the catchments program come in. Uh, We were implemented uh, in 2008 by Chagas to monitor the efficacy of of the measures of the Good Agricultural Practice. Um, And then later in 2014, uh, we had the Water Framework Directives. Uh, There was an implementation group that was started in DPA to attain and sustain at least good water status. And then we have food Harvest 2020 and Food wise 2025, which are about increasing the knowledge, scientific evidence and value of, of the primary output. And also then on top of that, we have climate. We have a, a challenging climate in Ireland and, and also a changing climate. Uh, In the last decades, we we experienced more rainfall uh, than than the most rainfall in over 300 years. And in 2019, Ireland actually declared climate emergency. So on one side, we have food production and climate change. And this, we we, we, we need to keep a balance then with good science and environmental policy. And I hope that's where we might see the agriculture catchments program also fits in. So the program uh, uh, started in 2008. It's ongoing and we are on our fourth cycle of funding from the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine. And it's a collaboration with over 300 farmers across six catchments. And we're big team. Uh, I don't know exactly how many we are at now, but we're more than 20. Uh, It's a a team consisting of scientists, uh, advisors, technologists, and technicians. And we use a whole catchment approach. And as a conceptual framework, we use what we call the nutrient transfer continuum. So that is a, a kind of a framework that makes it easy for us to to, to use the same approach across all the catchments. So we follow nutrients from the source, how they may be mobilized and transferred by different pathways. Uh, and along those pathways, there might be transformation processes uh, and delivery to water where there might be an impact. And we have the same experimental design across all catchments. And I think that's one of the strengths with the program as well. And that uh, experimental science also follows very much this nutrient transfer continuum. So, for the sources, for example, and mobilization, uh, we get a lot of information, of course, with the farmers uh, on, on the ground there uh, w- via our advisors. Uh, also, all the fields are sampled uh, on the field by field basis. And this is done in the start of each funding cycle. So, we're, we're just about to to, uh, do our fourth uh, survey across all the catchments. For the transfer, we of course need to understand uh, the weather. So we have in each catchment, we have a a weather station in the center of catchment. Uh, That's a full station uh, with with the rainfall uh, and all the parameters that can be used to also estimate uh, the evapotranspiration. So we know the water that's coming into the catchment and, and what's going back to the atmosphere. And transfer can of course be by different pathways. So just, just as an illustration here for surface pathways, we have, we have, a, have a detailed survey of, of, of the landscape with the, and built a digital elevation model. So we have a very, very good uh, topographical map, very detailed. Uh, and we can combine that with with lots of other information and find out uh, areas where where that where most of the surface pathways are and of course then combine that with the weather we we will know more about the timing of these Uh, there are other ways indirect ways that i might mention as well later Uh, but there are also below ground pathways and uh, for these we need to look in, in, into the ground, of course, and, and we have multi-level monitoring wells. So we have a few monitoring wells uh, around the landscape. Uh, most of them are in transects, hill slopes, and these typically screen different depths. So in the s- subsoil and in, in the, the weathered bedrock zone and, and deeper bedrock, and we can, we're can we there monitoring the water table flux, how it changes, and we can get, get an idea of, of which directions the water is moving uh, vertically and laterally. Uh, but the good thing is we can also sample these and we do so every month. Uh, so we sample all of them for, for a chemical analysis of, of nutrients and metals. Then for delivery, we have uh, in each uh, river catchments uh, outlet in, in river, we have what we call uh, an outdoor lab. So I have well, first of all, we have also a, a where, where we can monitor how much water is leaving the catchment in the river. So combining that with the information we get from the weather station, we get a, a full water balance, a water budget. So we know how much water is going out there. And in that water in the, in the river, we also have sensors, uh, optical sensors. And one of them reads nitrate N concentration. Another one is also for total organic carbon we have for turbidity, that's how uh, it's, it's a proxy used for uh, how much sediments it's in there. Electrical conductivity and temperature are also there. But then we have actually also a sample automatically being taken every 10 minutes uh, for analysis of uh, total phosphorus and, and the total reactive phosphorus concentration. So, so we have all of these parameters collected every 10 minutes in, in all of the rivers, in, in the catchments. And uh, there's also a sample being collected at multiple places along the river network. I think it's up to 10 in each catchment, uh, for, for also for chemical analysis on, on the monthly base. So for that, that then we get more of, of uh, information across the whole river network. And finally, for, for the impact, we have a group from UCC who, who makes an um, ecological survey. Uh, this is done twice per year in May and September, and they they uh, analyze for, for um, diatoms and macroinvertebrates. And you may under, ask, why, why so much data? And, and uh, first of all, maybe how, does this data look like even, Uh, this is a graph of 10 minute uh, samples of reactive phosphorus over 11 years. And it's immense. I think this is about half a million data points in this graph. And uh, it may seem like overkill, but there's a lot of information, uh, very useful information coming out from this. And I just list a few of them here. First of all, it captures all. We're not missing anything and we're not risking averages being skewed by uh, uh, some data points. So so we, we believe we get a, a good good value of uh, good information in, in this. It also provides insights to water quality during different hydrological conditions, so during low flow and high flow across the air. <clears throat> And we can detect even subtle changes in water quality and by being able to to create uh, for example annual averages uh, that we know consists of, of a, a, a full time series we can we can use that to to link to larger scale weather systems and link that to the to water quality and and understand the effect of of what's causing what. So, so if it's mostly uh, a weather driver behind or not. And then it can be used, uh, we have been developing new ways of uh, identifying and quantifying pathways of neutrons by this. So we can, we can separate quick flow pathways and below ground pathways and interflow pathways with this method. And of course, we can use it to to validate and and even build models and test other sampling schemes. Maybe maybe in some areas you don't want don't need so much information, and and this can guide you to to the the frequency that that would be required for that system. And it can be used also to interpret the frequency of of the low frequency sampling, what, what that actually means. In, if you have a time series that, that's maybe only sampled a few times per year, you can compare it to, to this and, and uh, with other parameters too and, and get, get get a lot of information also from that data. And of course then having these very data-rich areas uh, to, to build uh, knowledge from that and uh, extrapolate that knowledge to, to other areas, larger areas. It's also been used uh, quite frequently as an educational platform, and I find that very, very good. So Ireland has a very diverse landscape, as you all know, and it's uh, has many soil types, land, landscape features, and the complex geology, and also different types of land use. And all these things that affects the nutrient transfer pathways uh, and transfer times and transformation processes uh, then varies highly within a catchment, but also between the different catchments. And that's very important to recognize when we when, when look at these different catchments. These are the six catchments we've been working with. Um, they're spread across Ireland, and they're all chosen to represent intensively managed land in Ireland but all on different physical settings. So typically chosen to, to represent different uh, riskiness in terms of phosphorus loss or nitrate loss. And, and that's very much to do with the soil drainage. So some, some catchments with, with very heavy soils were believed to they, they would have a, a lot of surface pathways and, and that will carry phosphorus while uh, well-drained soils will leach nitrates. Um, And in many cases, that was true. And and, uh, our our first initial assessment of the riskiness uh, was confirmed. In other cases, uh, it it wasn't true. And and, uh, we just realized that the the picture is so much more complex. So we really have to understand how the physical settings is, and, and chemical settings together with agronomy is affecting uh, nutrient loss. So here I have framed three of the catchments. It's the near catchment, the canoe catchment, and Tim Lee. And those three catchments, they all have high uh, concentrations of phosphorus in the rivers uh, above uh, the levels where there should be. So they're all uh, elevated but for three very different reasons. And and, uh, what I'm gonna do now is I'm gonna go through each of these catchments and and give an example uh, of why they are are high in in phosphorus concentration. Start off with the near catchment. It's all about here uh, agronomical controls. So it's an arable land on poorly to freely drained soils. And and there are complex pathways in, in this catchment. And the phosphorus concentration has proved to be high in in all of these pathways. And and that's a lot to do with what we found also from our soil survey, because there actually was an increase in in, uh, index 4 soils here in this catchment. So this is then what we would call a source risky catchment. Uh, it's good farm-scale nutrient management would be needed uh, to improve the spatial distribution of nutrients here. And there's plenty of room for improvement. So I have this in mind. Uh, this is a source risky catchment. And here is another type of risky catchment. It's um, it's a Tim Lee catchment in West Cork, where it's much to do with the chemical controls. Uh, this is. grassland on freely-drained soils and and also very iron-rich soils. And iron-rich soils favored phosphorus into soluble form, uh, which is then uh, leached into groundwater. So when comparing this catchment with another free-draining catchment, which was aluminium-rich, we found that uh, 50% of the phosphorus was lost via below ground pathways in both of the catchments. So, uh, below ground pathways were very important in these free draining catchments. But, excuse me, uh, the loss was three times higher in the iron-rich catchment due to to, uh, the more, uh, being in a more soluble form. So this was a mobilization risky catchment. It's also important, though, to, to have in mind that this catchment has very high source pressure, so there will also be, be source issues. But, but it, to, to conceptually understand what, what we've been looking here, it, it's, it's about mobilization risk. Yes. And phosphorus, is, phosphorus leaching can be important also at the whole catchment scale. But there are also likely to be hotspots for leaching of phosphorus in these catchments. And then we would like to find out more about that. and we have a student project that's looking into it. And then finally, the third catchment typology, uh, the Dunleer, uh, sorry, the Balcanute catchment in Wexford. It's a grassland on poorly drained soils. So it's very heavy uh, clay soils. and hydrologically flashy, that means it responds quickly to rainfall. Uh, and, and uh, it will be dominated by, by quick surface pathways. And when comparing this catchment uh, with its neighboring uh, castellar catchment, which has freely drained soils, we found that for the same river flow, this catchment had three times higher uh, phosphorus loss. And it wasn't to do with the sources because they had similar sources uh, in, in the soils. So. This is an example of a transfer risky catchment where hydrology overrides the source pressure. And I think it's quite clear that all these re despite having phosphorus risk, it's clear that there is for three very different reasons and there is no one-size-fits-all solutions to this. We need to understand how, how the catchments behave and respond to to nutrient loadings and response to weather conditions and which type of pathways are involved. But I also like to give this example that there's not only a a steady state situation between the different catchments, there's also temporal variability. And this is an example from um, castledoccal catchment with well-drained soils where normally the, Pathways would be dominated by below ground pathways. It would be uh, groundwater driven. Uh, Here looking at a summer rain event compared with a winter rain event, uh, the summer rain event had a soil moisture deficit of 31 millimeters. And in the winter event, it was a soil moisture deficit of zero millimeters. And what that means is that if you see the soil as, as a bucket, 31 millimeters soil moisture deficit means that there's still room for another 31 millimeters before the bucket is full. Uh, and, and that's of course, uh, when the soils are dry in, in summer, uh, the situation. But in winter it's uh, it's the, the soils are moist uh, all the time and there's little evapotranspiration. So the the bucket was already full, it was all zero millimeters. So I guess you can understand what happens then if, if you have a rainfall event, this summer rain event, this is real data. So this was 25 millimeters and the winter rain event was almost the same. So four millimeters more, 29 millimeters, but in the same magnitude. So what happened here is if you look at the river flow, what's coming out on the other end, It was only two millimeters in the summer event and 20 millimeters in in, in the winter event, Um, despite being more or less the same magnitude. So 10 times more flow uh, in in the winter event, and that of course influences uh, the phosphorus loss. Uh, In in the summer event, it lost 1.6 grams of reactive phosphorus per hectare, and in the winter event, 6.5 grams. So that was actually four times higher phosphorus loss in the winter event, in the same catchment. So the timing, the antecedent conditions are very important too. And and this is one of the reasons uh, why there is a close period for for spreading. Now, this is an example of our critical source area maps uh, that was developed by by, uh, Ian Thomas, this is actually putting the information I just been giving here now, we, we, it, this is more or less a, a composition of all that in different layers. So this is, uh, first of all, uh, built on a LIDAR map image, a digital elevation model with high resolution topographical information. And then superimposed information on the soil phosphorus concentration, erosion risk, mobilization potential and uh, areas, hydrological sensitive areas. And by doing so, we can identify the the critical source area, the, the risky areas for, for Newton's loss. And those are the red, red areas in this image. If you zoom up, you can see then that will be surface driven pathways there um, with delivery points. And of course, this is a way to go if you want to have a, a very a targeted and efficient measures. Uh, instead of, of the, for example, having a buffer strip along the whole river network, you could target these delivery points. <clears throat> and then of course we have the weather that, that's uh, uh, quite challenging. And I would just r- like to review, I know you, you know, you have it all very clear in your memory, all the different types of weather we had recently. But as an example, uh, from the hydrological year of 2018, and hydrological year starts in October. So I'm just going to show here from October 17. It started off with Hurricane Ophelia, which was uh, quite a severe event. It was more associated with winds than, and possibly didn't have that much influence on water quality, but it was a significant event. And it was followed by by winter and, and as it says here, the wettest in in over 300 years. And then we had this situation when when, uh, the beast from the east, the cold air from the east, met up with tropical storm Emma and created this massive uh, snow event. Here, my kid standing on what is the road to my house. Uh, It's a lot of snow. And this was then followed by a severe drought in in summer of 18. And then this is just almost normality now for for this time of the year. We all remember now even uh, last weekend, uh, Storm Alex. This is not Storm Alex, but it's just an example of of, of these storms that were getting more frequent uh, coming into Thailand now. So climate change is one thing, uh, but there's also a natural system and and they're of course interacting with each other. But I think we can see them as superimposed on each other. We have uh, the North Atlantic Oscillation, which is a big weather system uh, naturally occurring uh, and and being an island in in the Atlantic, of course we're very affected by this. And this composes by low pressure cells over Iceland and high pressure cells over the source. And it funnels in, sometimes it gets more intensified and funnels in a lot of wet, moist areas, uh, air, and we get a lot of rainfall in winter. And we actually, it also creates more drier summers. So this situation with more intensified uh, pressure cells is occurring more frequently now, and it can be expressed with an index. So it's nothing new, it's been monitored for a long time. Uh, here's a time series from the 50s, 1950s up to now. And what this clearly shows is that during the programs, uh, the, the period that we've been monitoring water quality in, in the cashmets program, we had a sharp increase in this index. And it has affected what, what we're looking at. Uh, nitrate and phosphorus concentrations were correlated to changes in this index. But there were different responses for different catchment typologies. These different types that I showed you before. But weather changes may override local management is one of the outcome. So this is not an excuse for anything. This is just to, to illustrate that the weather influences what we're seeing as well. And we need to know what is causing what So we draw the right conclusions, uh, and particularly for for choosing uh, mitigation options. And of course, in climate change, uh, lies also uh, a lot of weather extremes. So these are events that may drastically offset the normal conditions, the baseline conditions. Uh, And it may also alter the type of riskiness and require additional mitigation strategy and I'm just going to give some examples of that from our catchments. Uh, we have, for example, again, I'm going back to Balakanu catchments, which is a long term uh, phosphorus transfer risky catchment with mostly grassland. And you can see this is just a photo from 2018, uh, summer of 2018, where the grass was very, very dry. And there was poor growth, so it didn't take up much nitrogen. And this started then to build up a pool of nitrogen in the soil Uh, and then due to the the warmth and and the drought itself um, was a lot of uh, mineralized n in the soil building up the pool even more and potentially also being a clay soil when it dries up very much there will be soil cracking and then after summer when the rain comes there's a lot of available nitrogen in the soil to to be flushed out and via preferential flow paths and into the river. And that's what happened. Um, What you can see here is a graph of the nitrate N mass load in in kilos nitrate per month, uh, plotted against the river flow in this chart in millimeters per month. And you can see there's a, a, clear linear correlation in this but there is an offset this red circle there that's November month and and that was uh, the first month when when, after the drought where where you start having a lot of rain and it actually offset uh, the nutrient clothing with 54 percent from of annual average in in that month due to this drought so um, oh sorry So this long-term phosphorus transfer risky catchment, uh, temporarily became nitrate risky in this situation. And then we go to the neighboring catchment, cathodactyl catchment, which is long-term nitrogen risky uh, catchment uh, normally. But in this case, the photo here, what you see is actually surface runoff. Despite having these well-rained soils, this is an example of all the winter conditions I showed you before, um, the soils were saturated and there was a massive big rain event in, uh, this is from November, 2014, and which created a lot of surface runoff here. And if you look here, this is a time series of the total phosphorus loads, uh, mass loads. So kilo total phosphorus per day and hectare, uh, as a time series. And you see this big spike in the middle. That's this event you see on the photo. It's 13th to 14th of November, 14, And it was 106% of the annual average uh, phosphorus loss in in only these two days. So this long-term nitrogen transfer risky catchment became temporarily phosphorus transfer risky due to these extreme events. So what I want to say here is that the influence of long-term weather shifts and short-term weather extremes both need consideration and require different mitigation strategies. And finally, an effect, another effect of the summer drought is the effect of a small point source, even a small trickle like this. Um, it's, it's actually, uh, here it's a time series in summer of 2018, again, when it's time series of reactive phosphorus concentration millimeters uh, milligrams per liter and what you can see here with this high temporal resolution 10 minute monitoring that you have two spikes in at 10 o'clock and seven o'clock uh, 10 o'clock morning and seven o'clock evening every day and it, it, it was corresponding directly to to the uh, milking uh, and, and, and washing of, of the platform and uh, Only a small uh, trickle from from this has an influence in in the river because the river is so low at that time due to the drought, Uh, so there's no dilution of this. So it it elevates the concentration very much. Uh, And this increased impact of point sources, in this case increased uh, the concentrations up to two milligrams of phosphorus per liter, and, and that's way above uh, the standards of 0.035 milligrams per liter. So even a small source may significantly elevate the phosphorus concentration. And this is during a time that's ecological sensitive. uh. So with this, I just want to take us to where we're going in this current phase, uh, the fourth phase of funding on, on the program. Um, we have an increased budget of 65%. And we're then going to extend our data collection and, and have new research associated with this. Uh, one thing we're, for example, looking into pesticides and we're looking into other compounds as well. Uh, farm-scale monitoring on nitrogen and phosphorus solution uh, and, and the groundwater on derogation and non-derogation farms. And we'll also have towers for monitoring of greenhouse gas emissions. And test above baseline uh, mitigation measures. So being able to test directly uh, the efficacy of of some measures. And model scenarios of intensification, uh, both of farming and weather, and upscale to regional and national scale. And then, just finally, to summarize this, um, efficient and targeted measures are needed. Uh, so continuous monitoring has provided us with an understanding of why, where, and how nutrients are lost to water. And there is no one-size-fits-all solution due to the different catchment typologies. And there are also different dominating pressures in these different typologies. So some might be more dominated by source pressures and some dominated by mobilization and others by transport. And there's also an overriding climate pressure, uh, long-term changes and short-term extremes. So with that I would like to thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Parik. If you could just stop sharing there. Yeah. Uh, oops. Uh, apologies to uh, Porik. I forgot to introduce him at the beginning of the talk. We we're also joined this morning to, to assist in, in questions by by my colleague uh, Parik Foley in chagas Johnston Castle. Okay, we have, uh, uh, I suppose, uh, a really interesting presentation, Per Eric. Uh, the, the, the one thing that comes across to me is, is there's a lot of data there. There's a lot of work in terms of interpretation of it, uh, a lot of learning. And uh, I suppose what you've been able to do in, in half an hour really doesn't do it
2: uh, complete justice.
1: No.
0: Per Eric, you might just have you any questions coming through Can there? We, we've-
2: Lots of questions coming through, Pat. Um, I suppose the first one, I, I get one of the hardest ones out of the way and I, I know I kind of want to avoid any political statements or what have you, but there's a question here, Berg. You've showed a couple of um, pictures of dairy cows uh, walking down the roadways and you kind of highlighted the impact on the catchment that they're in down in Cork. Um, and there's one question here, is the current demonization of dairy farming for its effect on water quality justified? So I suppose what is the impact of, of dairy farming on, or what are you seeing?
1: So, sorry, sorry. Could, could you Could you just repeat?
2: So I suppose, Pererik, you showed a number of images of dairy cows um, mm-hmm. in your slides. And there's a question here around the impact of dairy farming on the catchments and what are you seeing uh, from dairy farming? I, and I suppose what, what's showing up in your results?
1: Yeah. OK. So again, I then had to go to the complexity of the catchments because there is no directly link between the source pressure and and what's coming out in in, what's actually leaving the rooting zone and coming out in the water, uh, in in the rivers. In some catchment, there might be more of a direct link, and others there's not. So it it depends very much on on the soil types and and the different pathways associated to it, and and, uh, the attenuation processes along those pathways. so, so actually, what what I'm saying here, there's no no direct quick answer to that. Uh, some catchments we see uh, an increase in concentration with with, with the intensification, and others we don't.
2: Okay, and um, can you determine if the P in transit is natural is is of natural form or is from a chemical fertilizer being applied?
1: If if we if we have any methods, you mean to, to distinguish
2: yes yeah uh
1: we, we th- there is actually um, a walsh fellowship a student uh, project that that's working on exactly this so with other words we don't we we, we cannot do it now but uh, we will be able to do it we, we okay
2: so the plan yeah, is to be able to
1: yes great yeah yeah
2: well, a similar type question, then, um, and and maybe it's the same answer. But in the example that you gave there in Castle Dockrell, so you had your thirty-one millimeters. Um, you you gave the example of the two buckets and yeah. the, the P loss that was overland. Could could you kind of determine whether it was overland flow or was most of it lost through the soil?
1: Okay. Yes, we can determine that. Uh, we have methods using the the all the information with the monitoring of the hydrology, the discharge. And we can separate, we can do what we call a hydrograph separation, but you can also do that with with the concentration and the mass loads, so we can separate the pathways and we can see, for example, in in a, a winter event. Uh, like that it, it was absolutely dominated by by surface pathways then so in, in that big event that I showed an example of an extreme that that was. Near hundred percent of the the phosphorus loss there, and you can we can also see um, the effect of that indirectly since we monitor different fractions, different species. So we have a total phosphorus and reactive phosphorus, and and the difference there would be particulate or organic phosphorus, and that difference then increased drastically, which. Indicates a lot more particulate phosphorus, uh, typically for, for surface pathways. So we can get it confirmed in many ways. Uh, th- there is a change of, of pathways over the years, or, or over the year, and, and in in winter time there would be more surface pathway.
2: Okay, if you were if you were um, let's say dictator over that region, what would you have the farmers do, and um, to make sure that they kind of avoid the losses that you're seeing? on those soil types.
1: Okay, so those those maps that I show you of critical source areas, I I think they will become very important because some areas contribute more than others. Uh, So what I would say is avoid critical areas and critical times would be
0: Parik, is just I suppose a, a couple of things are just what might bring people's attention to it. there's there's a question uh, there was a question there about uh, further information and we there are a number of reports of uh, each of the catchment uh, uh, there, there's a report from each of the, the uh, iterations of the catchment uh, and there's also you've had a number of conferences so just to say to people that we will uh, and can put up our, our email to uh, the audience, uh, uh, links to some of those uh, after the, the uh, um, conference today, so we, we will put it up uh, on our website and, and email it to you, if, if that's okay. Um, the question there um, in relation to uh, drought, uh, is there an argument uh, for catchment based uh, drought management plans to control nutrient losses?
2: just to add to that, Pat, there's a similar one Eric right there, um, on the same tone. Do we need to improve our management of spreading fertiliser during drought situations, referring to the soil moisture
1: deficit? Absolutely. absolutely. I, I think that 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 would be very useful. Um, but I think this is where good, accurate uh, weather forecasts will be very important in, in this planning. But I, I think... I think this is this is very important to to get through.
2: Okay, um, how can local community-based catchment projects engage more with Chagas locally? So I suppose, is there more uh, ways to reach out to you guys and, and get more involved?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, they're very welcome to contact us. And, and we do have a lot of visitors uh, out, out in the catchments and, and a lot of engagement and, and I would, Encourage more of that. Uh, Perry, P- P- a good question there: Are there
0: plans to increase uh, the number of, of monitoring stations uh, to other catchments? And I suppose a, a, a topic that, that you are you said at the beginning, you're, you're focusing on uh, intensively farmed areas. Um, but yes, when we look at the water quality data from uh, EPA, we see that an awful lot of the lower uh, quality. Uh, waters are in actually non-intensively farmed areas. So uh, I suppose the question is, is there any possibility or or plans to extend monitoring?
1: Well, at this stage, it's not a plan to extend with more areas, even though I think that that would be a good idea. I I think what the the plan is to extend our monitoring within our catchments as as it is today. Uh, but we would use this, this detailed information we're gaining from these areas and, and scale up to other areas where, where you have less information and, and to areas maybe less intense areas as well and, and uh, you use our model studies as well using these areas to build our models and, and uh, extrapolate to these areas and, and there is a lot of good uh, data existing from from DPA on from on a national level that that we could use for this to, to link. Okay,
2: Per, we have a question here just around buffer zones. We've talked about um, the overland flow and uh, loss through the soil. How, how effective are the buffer strips um, that we've had other speakers speak about previously on on um, our Friday morning?
1: well they it, it, it's again i refer to the, the type of the typology of the catchments i mean in, in some areas they would be very effective if if you know if they can be targeted and and we heard uh, darrell daryl speak about the smarter buffers i i think that's they need they need to be the smarter buffers we need you need to know um what type of buffers to the, the right measure in the right place uh, it's a, that question
2: kind of keeps coming up again, Peric. Um, we have another one here again. Uh, some of the impacts highlighted appear to be related to climate events, obviously yeah. climate change. So how realistic is it to expect, expect farmers to mitigate for these and what practically can they do? And I know you mentioned that it, it's going to take really solid weather forecasting, but you know, if you were to advise the farmers or what do you see farmers in the catchment areas? Obviously, they're getting more intensive advice um, because they're working with you guys. So what changes are they making on their farms?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, to, to, to go back to that, uh, what they can do, the, the measures uh, with the buffers, for example, I showed that example where where it was um, a catchment which is actually dominated by below ground pathways where, where you may think then uh, a buffer, uh, 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 something in the landscape there mightn't do very much good because most of it is bypassing below. Uh, but then you had that event when when 106% of the phosphorus was lost over two days. So if, even if it's only a very sh- temporary event, it might be worth mitigating that with also uh, something on the surface. Uh, and, and it's all about then targeting, knowing where these delivery po- the points are uh, and finding out. So, But by finding these delivery points is, is one way. Uh, and I think there are loads of other ways a farmer can do to, to mitigate. I mean, we already mentioned to, n- to know when and where uh, nutrients are mostly lost and avoid these areas and times. Um, other maybe easy gains, low hanging fruits, sort of, so to say, is to identify maybe these uh, drains, ma- managed drains better would be a good thing. So this, this point source that I showed you an example from would, would be uh, an, an easy target. It's an easy, easy win. So, so I think there, there are many, many small things that we can do to, to improve quite a lot.
2: Okay, and just uh, when you mentioned the, the small things that we can do, there's a question here, just wondering, is there any best practice guidelines or a manual that has been developed as a result of the catchments work to give to the farmers in farmer friendly language or in user friendly language, um, or where can they be accessed if they are available?
1: Well, th- th- there isn't actually, but I find that a, a very good idea to, to do something like that. What, what we have been doing now is actually, we've been monitoring quite a long time now, baseline conditions. And not until now, in this phase of our program, we can take this next step further and start testing measures. And and that will definitely uh, be able for us to to give these guidelines.
2: Okay, so it's safe to say it's in the pipeline. Yes. Um, Stocking density or source pressure and losses to water is related to soil type and rainfall events is there a nationally map is there a national mapping layer for soil types and
1: pressures that could help with this or are you aware of any well there are soil type soil type maps obviously but i the luxury we have in our catchment is that we have very very detailed information and we're kind of building our understanding from that detail and and then we have to uh, scale, scale down so to say well in, in information I, I don't think that information is available at the national scale even if there are of course maps available uh, maybe not of the same resolution but I think we need to use our information and generalize uh, um, in, in other areas there might be a dominating soil type and and we can use that information uh, when we do draw up any strategies
2: okay when you mention other areas and you said you have an increase of 65 percent in your funding um is there an ambition or are there plans to go to other areas or other regions or are there soil types that we're missing out on um as a result of uh, i guess sticking to the same locations for the last 11 years
1: yeah no no we're, we're not going to other areas but if we were i would prioritize maybe. We, we, we don't have organic soils in, in the picture, for example, um, so that would obviously be something we would want to know more about. And, and uh, there would be other areas. Uh, you, you probably saw from our map there that most of the catchments are uh, focused on, on the coastlines and not, not so much in the center of, of, of the... Was there a reason for that, Perik? Uh, Sorry, no, well, actually, th- they were chosen with a multi-criteria analysis, uh, b- very robust in way of finding catchments right. of a certain size, uh, and and uh, of intense agriculture, and, and this is what came out of it, of that. Perk, yeah, it, you a, question,
0: a, a question there uh, in relation to, uh, I suppose, critical source areas that have been identified, have any uh, measures like Uh, riparian zones or sediment traps being uh, investigated within the the catchments to uh, to alleviate those and get any indication of effectiveness? Uh,
1: Not yet. Uh, Again, this is a project that we just started. Uh, We have a collaboration with Newcastle University uh, and where we're going to start since we've now been, uh, as I mentioned before, monitoring baseline conditions. Now now we're taking this step to, to start testing so sediment traps is actually one of them, uh, definitely, that we're going to do. Uh, and and uh, we, we have some, some uh, really interesting sites where, where we believe this is going to do a big difference. Uh, and, and we're just being able to test it out and, and quantify that. And, and then, then this is going to be used for, for models and scale up to whole to catchments.
2: When you mentioned models perrick, we have a question here um, about planning to upscale the outcomes um and is there any are there any plans to digitize it or create any additional modeling? I suppose going back to the earlier question to to develop plans on a national basis
1: yes that that's the part where we're just about to recruit a new catchment modeler and and that will be one of the one of the tasks okay so, so the question an advertisement where... was it sorry.
0: Uh, how could farmers be made aware of critical source areas on their farms and I suppose arising for that is there any rules of thumb that that uh, you can get or you can give to to help people to identify where those those critical source areas might be
1: okay well well first of all uh, I, I have a feeling that that many farmers ha- have an idea themselves uh, of, of their land that, that they know the areas they're avoiding for being very wet and uh, so they would be naturally associated to wet wetland where, where it's poorly drained and and maybe um, close to the rivers and and th- those those areas would be pro- probably the ones that will be coming up on our sor- critical source area maps um, they would be low in the topography uh, and I think to for them to be aware of it uh, I mean, Obviously, in in the catchment we've been working with, we we can via our advisors communicate that. But the general on a natural level, I I, I think it's the the, the near stream areas that are poorly drained. Okay.
2: There's a comment here: is soil pH correction could reduce P loss. For example, in the cases of chemical risk control or iron rich soils, is there a correlation between P loss and soil pH in this chemical control scenario? Uh,
1: I'm sure there is. Uh, I, I We haven't looked at that at the catchment scale, although we have had plot trials and, and found found that. But, but of course, uh, what I've been saying, talking about here, has more been uh, results based on the catchment outlet. So that's integrating a 10 square kilometer area, um, and, and we haven't seen anything that we can confirm that at that scale. However, uh, at, at the plot scale, obviously, yes.
2: You mentioned experimental design at the outset as well, Perrik, um, and that that because it's all cons- consistent across the catchments, um, that's the strength of the overall program. Is there much of a variation in the technology that kind of you started out the catchment study with and what's available today? Could it lead to like, do you need new technology or could it kind of enhance um, your findings?
1: Yeah, well, technology is developing all the time. I, I think uh, on re- regarding the phosphorus monitoring, I don't think there's so much more at, at, as we speak. Uh, but I know a lot of other sensors are being developed. And, and one thing, it, its uh, I, I think what's in the pipe in terms of technology is that it's just becoming so much uh, smaller and, and uh, easy to mobilize. Now we have these big outdoor labs. Uh, one one uh, discussion is this lab on the chip. So they're really small technologies that, that can be easy be depleted in, in multiple places and, and that obviously will change things drastically. Uh, we, we will be able to to get get a lot more insight and, and a lot more done of course. But
2: Okay, just on collaboration, then, how are you linking up with with other organizations? Obviously, um, there's ASPECT, there's ZPA. You know, you know, you're, I presume, from a university point of view, you're linking up with um, universities as well, but how are you benefiting from collaboration, I guess, is the question here.
1: Oh, this, this is a big part of the program. We're actually, uh, I think, currently, we're collaborating with 10 externally funded projects that that somehow... Are, are linked to the program either directly or indirectly and, and, and that uses data from, from, from the program. Uh, so, and that's national projects and, and international projects. So it, it's, it's, it's well, well used, resourced in that way. There's
0: a couple of questions coming in uh, and uh, I'll lump a couple of them into one. Uh, will load management alone achieve the required reduction levels? And I suppose our policy has been predominantly on on load management. And the second part of that is, will a one size fits all, fits all approach uh, deliver the, the kind of outcomes that, that, that we need?
1: Yeah, so that, that, that's a good question because lo- load management alone could in some places uh, work, uh, in others not. <laughs> and and I, I, that, that directly then links to that, that no, there is no one size fits all uh, for this. And, and the, the examples I showed you there, for example, with, with, with the Bella Canoe catchment, Casadoccal catchment, just neighboring catchments, but one catchment having three times higher phosphorus loss than the other, despite similar loadings uh, and attributed to, to hydrology in that case. And there are other other situations that, that other factors as well that, that could contribute. So, yeah, better better load managing could w- work very well in one catchment and and not at all in another one. So we need to understand the the, the landscape better. We need to understand these uh, physical characteristics in, in each catchment uh, to 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 decide uh, on on the good. Good management, efficient management.
2: Okay, and um, I guess want to wrap up. Pat, we're we're getting near time. There yeah. is there is there a trend in terms of nutrient loss during the project, um, i.e., is there an increase or a decrease that you guys are seeing?
1: We have seen in some catchment there are increases, and uh, and and some catchment in in nitrates and others in in phosphorus. Uh, and some are, are entirely steady state. But once the, the interesting bit there is, for example, one catchment that we've seen a, a steady increase in nitrate concentration, both groundwater and surface water. Uh, in that catchment, there hasn't been an increase in, in the loadings. Uh, so, so in that catchment, it, it was more correlated to actually to the weather shift. But we have seen in another, yet another catchment, uh, an increase that was more linked to intensification so th- th- again there are different reasons for that trend and another trend uh, other catchments. there has been um
2: so with the weather shift peric what management what management can take place on those catchments to reduce the, the impact
1: well i, I suppose uh, in that catchment it was was uh, a lot. It, it was the nitrate concentration that was going up and it's freely rain catchment, arable, so I think winter cover crops would be a good thing. In, okay. Over to you, Beth.
0: Okay, uh, listen, uh, thank you very much for that, Pereric. I, I I suppose one comment uh, that I would make is we're starting to learn a lot about uh, water quality, but I think, uh, and, and the impacts of various factors uh, and it's, it's absolutely key knowledge and it will be key knowledge I think for everybody working with farmers uh, over the, the next number of years to, to get to grips with. Uh, fortunately we have a number over the, the next number of weeks we have a number of other uh, um, uh, sessions from the catchments program so some of your colleagues will be with us over the next number of weeks which is, which is great. Uh, with that I, I, I'd like to thank Eric for his, his presentation, uh, I'd like to thank uh, um, uh, Parik for, for being with us on, on questions. I'd like to thank our, our production team Andy Boland uh, and Yvonne Mar for, uh, uh, for organising this on, a, on a, a weekly basis, we're, we're up to 28 uh, at, at this stage in terms of the series and, and the plan is, is, is to continue it in, indefinitely. So with that, I'll, I'll say uh, thank you very much for joining us. It's, it's great to have you with us uh, on a, a weekly basis and uh, join us again next week for the, the, the second of the Catchment uh, Talks. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagisk Signpost Series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson and thanks for listening.